If you would open your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter 23, a familiar passage, the 23rd Psalm. I'll be reading from the ESV, but the words will still be familiar. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. O Lord, the thought of dwelling with you forever, such a thought, such a glorious consideration. And yet, Lord, you have us now upon this earth with the trials and tribulations around us. And yet, Lord, as we will see from this passage, you are still with us and you are still guiding us. Father, help us to come to this text not with preconceived ideas, but with a willingness to see what you have written and to allow it to change our hearts, to inform our worship, to draw us nearer to you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would uh, guide my lips, that all that is said be honoring to you and to the Lamb, so that we may bring you the glory and the honor and the praise and the majesty that you deserve. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 23. No doubt this is a text that's familiar to almost everyone here. It seems like the words that open this psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, has a way of comforting men and women regardless of their backgrounds. Those who followed Christ for many decades will find solace in this simple declaration, the Lord is my shepherd. Even those who seldom gather together for worship will find you know, some, some level of, of comfort and some way of being uplifted even in their times of grief by these encouraging words. It's a psalm that's frequently memorized by Christ's followers. And it's even appropriated by the culture at large. Even just a quick survey of popular culture reveals that Psalm 23 is listed as number two in the list of 150 most popular Bible verses. Number two. Any thoughts on what number one is? Okay, I heard probably from a number of places. John 3.16. Number two, Psalm 23. Or Psalm 23. 
It's also listed as one of, quote, 10 good Bible verses every business needs for 2016. Not really sure how they came up with that, but there is a list. If you are curious, you can go Google it. Um, It's also listed as one of the 20 most popular or comforting scripture passages for funerals. Again, you can go Google that. There's a lot of uh, funeral homes that will identify the scriptures that are most popular. Psalm 23 provides comfort for those that are grieving in those times. Uh, Elements of Psalm 23 have been used by a whole range of musicians, from classical giants such as Bach and Schubert to the other end of the spectrum, including Pink Floyd and the Grateful Dead. Uh, Again, I can't really help you with the songs there, and uh, I will not encourage you to go Google that. But in everything in between, Psalm 23 is so picturesque. It has words that speak to the hearts of people that even the culture at large picks and chooses things. Sometimes it's to ridicule Christians and what we believe. Other times it's because there's something in there that resonates with them. And they put it to song or they put it to poetry or they use it in the written word. Uh, Another study said that for people who read their Bibles regularly, this is the psalm that they turn to most frequently, Psalm 23. This psalm has a somewhat exalted status in the Western world today. How is it that this passage is so universally known, but perhaps so little understood? As one author noted, Psalm 23 is a, um, Psalm 23 is a popular Bible verse, the quote goes, that's often read at funerals, mostly because it's about finding a way to sidestep the bad times and to find silver linings. Really? Is that true? Is this just a spiritual pat on the shoulder to help you find a way to sidestep the bad times and to find the silver linings and crises when they don't really exist? Is this just an encouragement for you to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, so to speak? In his book entitled, Your God is Too Small, J.B. Phillips levies the charge that people today do not think that God is big enough to solve their problems. This is certainly true for non-Christians, but far too frequently this resonates for us within the church as well, for people like you and people like me. So the real question before us this morning is really a universal one. Is my God too small? Too frequently we're obsessed with, with, with the magnitude of our situation rather than the magnificence of our Savior. Rather than telling us that we need to sidestep or to manufacture silver linings, David writes Psalm 23 to show us that our problems are not a problem for our provider. He hammers this message home in his text that, that God abundantly abundantly provides for his people. The psalmist uses these six verses to paint on the canvas of our worship today. Two portraits of a God who is greater than our needs. First, he likens Yahweh to a shepherd who is expertly tending and caring for his flock. Secondly, he compares Yahweh to a a wealthy host who just lavishes care upon his guests. 
So Psalm 23, it begins in the subscript, or in the superscript, a psalm of David, which would be the first verse in the Hebrew Bible, a psalm of David. It's, it's, it's a song. A psalm is a song that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David penned at some point during his life. God the Spirit breathed out the words and preserved them in this book of Psalms so that they would be edifying to the people of uh, ancient Israel at that time and also edifying for the people of the church today. The book of Psalms is um, really a diverse collection of songs and prayers, and, and the point of it is to encourage a right worship of our God. Now, there are no markers in these six verses of Psalm 23 that will tell us exactly when David wrote this, or under what dire circumstances he was suffering, or what was on his mind when he composed this song. Did he write this as a young lad, perhaps, having worked as a shepherd in his, you know, for, as a shepherd for his family, watching the family's herd, but yet at the same time exposed to kingly courts as a musician for King Saul? We read about that in First Samuel 16. Or, or perhaps he composed this on the other end of his life while he was a king of Israel and dealing with the tumult that, that rule and rebellion was dealing to him. We simply don't know. The text doesn't give us enough clues or markers to tell us when or what the circumstances were when this was written. But perhaps that's one of the qualities of this psalm that makes it so appealing to us today. We can resort to the comfort of this song of David regardless of the specific problems that we're facing in life. It, it has a universal appeal, and it applies to all of our problems. As we approach the text this morning, we'll see that there are three primary sections in this psalm. David magnifies the absolute sovereignty and power of God through two picturesque illustrations in this song. First, in verses 1 through 4, Yahweh is pictured as a shepherd to his people a shepherd to his people. Then in verse 5, David portrays the second picture, Yahweh as a host to his people. And then finally in verse 6, this song of worship concludes with a declaration of the psalmist's desire for Yahweh. I mean, after such a demonstration that God abundantly provides for his people, the only fitting response is heartfelt. Yahweh is the desire of his people. Now, if you have a in your bulletin, you'll find an insert. It's a guide. You can scratch on this. Notes. It helps you kind of navigate as we go through this psalm. And I will confess right away, there are a lot of lines on here. And I will go as fast as I can and try to fill them in. But the point really isn't the lines. It's what comes before the lines. So as we look at this psalm, what we want to see is how often we see that Yahweh provides. Yahweh provides. Yahweh provides. So as we go through this, this may or may not be helpful to you. As we start looking at this, we're going to see how Yahweh provides for his people. And we begin in verse 1. Verse 1 of your text, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So if you're following along, this would be the first, the first line to fill in. This is the first example of how God abundantly provides for his people. And the answer is, Yahweh is all providing. In this first verse, the Bible is making a strong, a strong assertion about the relationship between Yahweh and his people by way of a metaphor. 
or a portrait or an illustration or a story, if you will. And it's the portrait, it's the picture of a shepherd. Verses 2 and uh, two through 4 that follow this continue on with a picture of a shepherd, but 2 through 4 provide the evidence or the examples of how exactly the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, plays out in this psalm. Um, it, it shows how this is manifest in the life of a believer. But first, uh, we really want to get some appreciation of what this bold assertion is. You know, this verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, I shall not want. That's kind of the heading for what's going to follow. David is declaring here, and the Lord is my shepherd, that there is but one shepherd who is leading, feeding, nourishing, and protecting him. Now, if David is a lad writing this, he doesn't say that his shepherd is his father, Jesse, or perhaps the prophet Samuel, or even the reigning king, King Saul. That's not the shepherd that he's looking up to. Now, on the other hand, if David is writing this while he's a king, then he himself is the king of Israel. He is not viewing himself as the as the shepherd that's leading everyone. In fact, in this verse, he doesn't even say that God is the shepherd in a general sense, but he says Yahweh. In your Bibles, you'll see that the word Lord in verse 1 is all capital letters. Um, that indicates that it's Yahweh. This is, this is the covenant name of God. This is David stating that the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who has a personal, covenantal, loving relationship with him. Yahweh is not simply a shepherd or even the shepherd, but David asserts that he is my shepherd. His personal identification with the shepherd reveals that there's, um, it reflects David's own personal faith. It is in this declaration that he has taken his faith and he set it to music in this psalm. It's a resolute hope that becomes the worship of Israel. It's a spiritual anchor. It's become the praise of the New Testament church. It is this bedrock truth that undergirds our faith today. The Lord is my shepherd. But what does it mean to be a shepherd? I asked this in the first service. Has anybody here been a shepherd? Raised sheep or goats or some other livestock like that? I see two, three, three hands, four, okay. Um, when, when my brother and I moved out, we lived in a small farm, and um, mostly crops and some pigs and chickens and things like that. But when my brother and I went off to college, my parents replaced us with, with a set of goats. And somehow they came out on a head, they came out ahead there. I think they believed that um, they probably smelled better than two teenage boys. But... You know, until you get around around the animals, then you realize how much care is involved. Uh, what does it mean to be a shepherd? Well, if you're the shepherd, you have the responsibility of providing food and rest and protection for the sheep. When food was not available uh, at the town where the shepherd lived, maybe because of the season, it wasn't a good growing season, or, or maybe due to overgrazing in that area, the shepherd had to take his flock and go out into the hills. He had to live with the sheep. He had to live a semi-nomadic lifestyle as he led the flock to ever newer pastures where uh, they could be cared for. Without his constant care, 
the sheep could not survive on their own. Because the sheep absolutely depend upon the shepherd's leading and the shepherd's care. Because of this, the picture of shepherding was applied to both kings and deities in the Bible and in the ancient Near East. Um, the idea of shepherding and being in charge of, of either the, the people in your kingdom or for the false gods, maybe there's times where it's referred to them as shepherding the, their worshipers. It was a common, common motif. It was a common picture. Because the shepherd needed to be there to care for the sheep. So even as the shepherd was responsible for the well-being of the sheep, so too was the king responsible for his countrymen. So even as the king bore the responsibility for shepherding his subjects, even more so does Yahweh care for his people. You may recall the words of Psalm 100, a wonderful psalm, uh, even when it's put to, put to verse and put to, put to song. We'd love to sing it. Psalm 100, in verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Because the Lord is my shepherd, David can safely assert that he will not lack any needful item. Because he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He won't lack anything he needs. The Hebrew word for, for want in this case has the idea of 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 being less than the nominal level, being of having diminished or come down from what you really need. Um, in the days of Noah with the flood, this is the word that was used to describe the floodwaters, you know, the floodwaters that covered the earth and overflowed uh, their banks and, and deprived life upon the surface of the earth. In Genesis 8, uh, verses 3 and 5, it talks about the floodwaters beginning to decrease. You know, they gradually went from a stage where they flooded everything to the point where they were no longer floodwaters. Okay, there's, there's a watt there. They were no longer a flood. Uh, more strikingly, this same word for watt is used in talking about the righteous men in Sodom. And you say, what righteous men in Sodom? Well, that was the problem. Abram spoke with the Lord. The Lord said he was going to destroy, he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah unless there's, there could be so many men found that would be righteous. And, and Abram kept asking, Lord, well, how about, if there's, how about if there's this many? Or how about if there's this many? Or how about if there's only this many? The idea is the same. It was found wanting. There should have been many righteous men in Sodom, but it fell short. They were wanting. Not enough righteous men. But most frequently, this word for want is used to describe Yahweh's care for his people. And his care is such that their state of provision will never begin to fade or to degrade or to be less than what he desires for them to have. It is fixed. They shall not want. Moses reminds the people of Israel about this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And he speaks to them, calling to remembrance the Lord's goodness to them. And he says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked a thing. That's Deuteronomy 2.7. Yahweh is indeed all-providing. 
in a very general sense in verse 1. But David, does, he doesn't leave his worship of God at a high abstract level. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, well, God, thank you for blessing me today or thank you for what you've given me. No. David gets specific in verse 2. He backs up this declaration of verse 1 with exact instances in verse 2. So likewise, we're challenged today uh, to get specific in our thanks to God. Uh, I, I will confess, there are times where I go through a day and I think I'm going to pray and be thankful and nothing comes to mind immediately. Really? How can that be? Maybe it's not true for you, but there are times it's true for me. If I'm tired, but that's not what the psalmist is modeling here. He looks at a shepherd and he looks to see what the shepherd provides. And so we can be very specific in our thanks as we look closer and closer our lives and see how God's hand is there. He has a very personal care for us throughout each and every day. So what does he say in verse 2? In verse 2, he says, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. How is Yahweh all providing? First, we see that Yahweh provides sustenance and peace to his people. The picture of God being a great shepherd has continued as he, as he leads his flock, as he leads his people to their, to their desired destination. Now, I'll make another confession here. We don't, we don't have a sprinkler system on our property. Uh, we live in kind of a rural area, and so up until just like a week or so ago, our grass was crunchy. It was brown. It was yellow. It was not real well cared for. Um, and that stems from multiple things. You know, the fault is mine. I could go out and water it, but, you know, I'm from the north, and if you water your grass and it grows, then you have to mow it. So there isn't much point in that especially living in more of a rural area. So we just kind of let it go and um, leave it in the Lord's hands. But um, so up until just like a week or so ago, that's what it looked like. It was brown. It was crunchy. It was very, um, very unappealing. And uh, most of our neighbor's yards were like that too, so we could get away with it. But then the rains came. And what happens? You start to see some of the grass come up, new grass. It starts looking greener. We have little, little new grass that's available. And, um, and those red or those yellow-brown hues in the yard, they start to be replaced by tinges of green. And the colors become more vibrant. Um, that is not what the psalmist is talking about when he says green pastures here. When the psalmist is talking about green pastures, he is picturing the sheep in lush meadows. Uh, the wording indicates that this field is excellent in both its, its quantity and also in its quality. Here is a field that the sheep can get their sustenance. They can come, they can eat, they can lay down, they can rise up again, and they can eat some more. They are wholly provided for. But as good as this field is, that's not the emphasis of the verse. It's not really on the, on the destination of this wonderful field, but it's on the guiding care of the shepherd. He causes them to lie down and rest in such places of comfort and provision. Uh, the idea is, the implication is that the sheep would not have even recognized and enjoyed this place of, of sustenance and rest. 
the, the shepherd had to cause the sheep to, to bed down, to lie down, or they just would have passed it by. They would not have recognized it for what it was. Part of the problem is, if sheep are driven too hard, if you try to drive them too far in a day, and they don't get the rest that they need, they can die. Uh, you can see that in um, Jacob and Esau's interaction back in Genesis 33. It's possible to drive a sheep too hard. They have to be made to rest. And in this picture, Yahweh provides the sustenance and the peace. Verse 2 continues. He leads me beside quiet waters. The form of the verb here, leads, indicates that this is not a one-time event. This is a customary action. It's a habitual action of the shepherd. It is his, it is his practice to regularly bring the sheep to such waters. These, these placid waters would be suitable for watering sheep. Um, otherwise, if you have a fast-moving stream, sheep could be startled by the noise and um, they wouldn't get the drinks that they need. So in this parallel image to the green pastures, just as the pastures were green and all-sufficient for the care of the sheep, um, the quiet waters too, this is a place where the sheep can drink, rest, and then drink again. The quiet waters would also be a place that um, the shepherd could use these quiet waters and cleanse the wounds on the sheep from their from their from their travels, or wash the soiled spots off the sheep because the sheep are uh, largely not able to care for themselves in that regard. And so the shepherd could attend to uh, the wounds and even just the daily filth of the sheep. And uh, this just kind of builds on the image that, that Yahweh is an all, he's all providing. He cares for all of the needs of the sheep. Now this picture of a shepherd caring for the physical needs of the sheep uh, just seems so plain, so pastoral, so unspiritual that many preachers and theologians, uh, all the way from Athanasius in the 4th century A.D. up until John Calvin, but not including Calvin, in the 6th century A.D., um, sought to allegorize this psalm. They, they wanted to transform these simple pictures of mundane, seemingly mundane events and activities. They wanted to take those simple pictures and turn them into spiritual wells from which would flow deeper or more holy realities. So in, in, in those cases, those writers, they would take the, they just believed that the plain sense interpretation of the psalm was, well, just, just too plain. So they interpreted the green pastures to be the word of God from which the believers would get their fill. Now, that is true. You will get your fill from the word of God. But that's not really what the psalmist is trying to say here. It sounds pious. It sounds more holy to read a lot of spiritual implications into this. But if you do that, then you miss out on something very important. The reality is, is that God is as deeply involved in your day-to-day physical life as he is in your spiritual life. You might remember Jesus saying in uh, Matthew chapter 10, he writes, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. He's getting at the idea that God is 
aware of your situation. He knows everything about you. He has a vested interest in you. And so the psalmist here, he didn't have some sort of platonic view of the world in which the body was the prison of the soul and, and the, you know, we don't care about the physical needs of the body. We only care about the spiritual. That's not what the psalmist is saying. God has an interest even in the physical aspects of your life. And for, for, for God's people following their shepherd, they shall not want. They shall not, for, they shall not fall short and what God has deemed to be physically necessary or needful for them. But he does address the soul, too. In verse 3, he writes, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Here we see that God abundantly provides for his people. How so? And that Yahweh provides refreshment for the soul. Food and water alone do not meet all the needs of the sheep, and they certainly do not meet all of our needs. The journey in the oppressive environment that the shepherd would have to take the sheep on could take a really hard toll on the flock. But the good shepherd knows how and when to return a tired sheep back to its healthy state. Again, he restores, he restores my soul. The idea of he restores conveys the sense that this is the repeated, the habitual practice of the shepherd. He turns our hearts. He leads us back. He brings our hearts back to where they should be. It's not a one-time event. He has a constant interest and a constant care for his people, for his sheep. In 1757, at the age of 22, Robert Robinson penned the words to that famous hymn, Come now, fount of every blessing. With those words that really resonate with this verse. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like sheep, left to our own devices, our souls can become weighted down. Our problems loom larger than life. Financial worries, family struggles, health concerns. Stress at work, at school and in the home. Unsatisfying relationships. Fear of man, fear of failure, fear of the future. And the list goes on. Psalms 42 and 43 depict the despair that the follower of God may, may feel in their souls at times. Now God doesn't promise in, verse, in Psalm 23 that we won't feel disturbed in our walk with him. But even though we may be feeling disturbed, he will be faithful to always provide the refreshment for the soul when it is so sorely needed. Continuing verse 3, David sees the hand of God upon the events of his own life, and he writes, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Seeing how Yahweh is a shepherd to his people, David recognizes that Yahweh provides right paths. Picture is not of a shepherd kind of forging his way through, through the brush and underbrush, trying to find a new path or trying to cut a new trail. That, that's not what the picture is here. No, the, the track that's to be taken by the sheep is well-known, well-worn, and intended for their own well-being. Yahweh is righteous, and he desires that his people reflect that same righteous character. 
The paths in which the shepherd leads his sheep are consistent with that. The picture is that that a sheep will obey the will of his shepherd and will follow in this path of righteousness. It is the right path for the sheep because it is where the shepherd is leading. And why does he do this? The reputation of the shepherd is established by his successful care for the sheep. The psalmist acknowledges that it is for his namesake that Yahweh leads him in the paths of righteousness. It is to magnify the name of God. <clears throat> it is not for the glory of the sheep, but it's for the exaltation of the shepherd. David has experienced the tender, the tender shepherding care that Yahweh has given him. Because of this, he seeks to obey all that Yahweh has commanded as a means of following him, so that Yahweh will be glorified as that all-sufficient provider that he really is. God is indeed greater than our needs, and he provides the right paths for our lives as we follow him. So with the worshiper in Psalm 119, verse 32, we too may exclaim to God, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. The paths of righteousness will lead to greater worship. And verse 4, David brings this this picture, this portrayal of God as a shepherd to a close. And we read these familiar words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In order to reach the new grazing areas, the sheep would need to progress through some of the many the many valleys that kind of characterize the region of Israel. Valleys were dangerous places for sheep due to the, um, the precarious paths that they had to take, the threat of predators and the peril of robbers. Now, this is not the same word that's used for very steep ravines. Okay, This is a kind of a, a shallow, flat-bottom path at the bottom of a valley. But the key is, this is a valley, this is a path that's enshrouded in darkness. Um, and, you know... Th- th- it's, it's associated with gloom, with darkness. It's more intense than the regular Hebrew word that's used for darkness. Um, and it can be translated as the valley of the darkest gloom, or more popular, it's, popularly, it's been called the valley of the shadow of death. And there's a, a different ways that that can be translated. But the, the intent is still the same. Uh, whether it's perfect darkness or it's the impending peril of death, the valley is a treacherous place for unaccompanied sheep. But here again, Yahweh is shown to be all-providing as he now provides comfort during the darkness. The valley of deepest gloom or darkest gloom is an idiom. It's an expression. Um, It's a figure of speech. And it's being used to, in this case, depict the moral and physical peril that surrounds the follower of Yahweh. If you follow the shepherd, okay, you may encounter physical problems, but they're not outside the control of the shepherd. You may encounter challenges to your spiritual life, but again, the shepherd is aware of that. So even in these darkest of times, David can confidently assert, I fear no evil. The idea is that he will never fear evil. He finds his security and his comfort in following his shepherd he realizes that Yahweh always has his best interest in mind, always follows the best paths, and has a complete authority and power over what transpires in his life. More importantly, he never fears because he says, for you are with me. 
the comfort that Yahweh provides to the, to the psalmist in this picture um, is emphasized by the shepherd's tools. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was just an oaking club that um, could be used as a weapon to protect the sheep. It was not very long. The, the shepherd could keep it inside his cloak. Um, it was meant to meant as a weapon for uh, animals or robbers or other things that would threaten the sheep. The staff, uh, also made of oak, uh, was longer. And it wasn't primarily a weapon. It was um, used for herding the flock. He could use it to move the flock. Uh, he could use it to you know, single out sheep if he needed to. If they were traveling, he could use it to knock down fruit off of trees. And that would be very helpful since a lot of the shepherds were young boys. You know, it would be something that would help them to reach uh, things that they needed. And it could be used for navigating paths. You, know, you could part... Part brush, it's a, it's a tool, it's an implement that the shepherd used. And the mention of both these tools, both the rod and the staff, underscores the fact that the shepherd was fully equipped to handle any problem that related to the tending of the sheep. He's wholly provided to provide for the needs of his people, if we're speaking of Yahweh. But here in this verse, we see a turning point. A turning point in the worship of David. Because up to this point, he's been speaking of God as his shepherd in the third person. If you read it, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down. He leads me. He restores. He guides. And for his name's sake. It's all in the third person. But after recognizing that God is all providing and he cares for him, and and even in the darkest times of his life, David changes this to address God directly in the second person. He said, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Verse 4. Here the follower of Yahweh recognizes the foundational truth in this psalm. This is what it's been building up to. You are with me. Because of his loving presence, Yahweh is able to provide abundantly for the needs of his people. This refocusing of the worship by directing it, his praise directly to Yahweh coincides also with the, the shift in portrait from, from Yahweh being a shepherd over to Yahweh being a host to his people in verse 5. So in verse 5, we see, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's a change in picture. But just by way of, uh, just a quick reminder of where we've come from, uh, the first portrait Yahweh is a shepherd to his people in the first four verses. And in that case, he shows that God is all-providing. He does it as a, as a kind of a, a heading for what he's going to enumerate below. God is all-providing, and then he provides the evidence for that. As he says, look, Yahweh provides sustenance and peace in verse 2. He, Yahweh provides refreshment for the soul in verse 3. Yahweh provides the right paths also in verse 3. And Yahweh provides comfort during darkness in verse 4. In this second image, portrayed in verse 5, the Bible shows that Yahweh is a host to his people. Now, in, in this depiction, it's almost a mirror image. He talks about the shepherd, and he starts by saying, here's, here's the heading for the shepherd. He's, he's all providing, and then he lists the specific examples. But if you kind of flip that around when he goes to speak about God being a host, now he's, he's starting at, at the details, He's going to start at the details, and at the end, he'll provide kind of an overarching statement for how God is a host to him. So there's some parallelism in here. So here, David appears to list, he lists the evidences first, and then he's going to summarize how abundantly Yahweh provides at the end of verse 5. Okay. So, 
you provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. First of all, we see that, that as a host, Yahweh provides sustenance to his people. Again, you see that the idea of providing food. Even as the shepherd caused the sheep to lie down in lush green meadows where there was abundant grazing, we see that here we have an image of a table filled with food and set before the people of God. Now, today, we think about tables. You know, every, you know, it seems like everybody has at least one table in their house. Is there anybody here who doesn't have a table in their house? Okay, I figured that was a safe question. We have tables everywhere. We, have, you know, we just don't even think about it. But in those days, um, the tables were really only afforded by the wealthy, the rich. And if you want to do an interesting study, you can go in and say, go look up tables. Say, I'm going to, here, here are my parameters. I've got Genesis 1-1 here, and I'll go down to the time of David, and I want to see all the times that we see references to table. Now, the, one of the main references to table that you'll see has to do with the tabernacle, with the table of showbread and you know how you construct that. So if you set the tabernacle aside for now, and don't consider the table usage there because it's very specific, and you say, I just want to see where tables are used for food or for fellowship in the Old Testament up to the time of David, you'd be surprised. You would find that it's always in the context of, of a king's banquet or somebody that's wealthy. You know, it's, it's a rarity. And even in those days, the houses that did have tables, sometimes they were wood, but most often they were stone. Um, and they weren't very high. They were short, maybe 18 inches off the ground. But a table here, you know, in the appearance here, it leads us to believe that this is a wealthy host. This is a host that has the means by which to entertain his guest. And Yahweh is that kind of host. Um, he's a wealthy host. And in a surprising twist, it's not the servants of this wealthy host that serve the guests. It's Yahweh, the host himself, who is providing the sustenance to the people. He is the one who is preparing the table before them. This implies that there's a level of, of intimacy between the host and his guests, um, Similar to the shepherd who habitually led his sheep along uh, still waters or placid waters, the verbal form here also indicates that this host habitually or regularly arranges the food for his guests. Dining at a host's banquet table as a regular occurrence, uh, it's a regular occurrence for the people in this psalm, but it's not because they deserved it. It's only because of a continued, gracious will of the providing host that they can enjoy this benefit. You may recall um, Mephibosheth uh, from the Old Testament, Second uh, Samuel chapter 19, recounts the time when, when King David, if you remember, King David, his son Absalom, rose up against him and David had to flee Jerusalem. When he fled, uh, Mephibosheth didn't go with him because Mephibosheth was lame. And there's only so many times I'm going to be able to say his name correctly. Um, and he was lame. And so he didn't flee with, with David when David left. But after Absalom's death and the rebellion kind of died down, David came back to, came back to Jerusalem. In Psalm, I'm sorry, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, it recounts how David returns to Jerusalem. And, and he's met by Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth, he was, like I said, he was lame. He was a descendant of King Saul. And David had showed great favor 
to him and had provided a spot for him at, at the royal table. Now Mephibosheth recognized how his host, King David, had abundantly provided sustenance to him that was undeserved. How do we know this? We see it in verse 28 of 2 Samuel 19. And Mephibosheth asks in this question, he asks this question of King David. He says, For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you sent your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? That's a recognition of grace that's bestowed upon undeserved people. Mephibosheth had a passionate and accurate, he had an accurate understanding of the grace that was lavished upon him. How much more should this be true of us, the people of God today? Secondly, in Psalm 23, verse 5, we see that Yahweh provides security from enemies. The portrait of the host has him preparing a bountiful feast before the psalmist in the presence of his enemies, the text says. Under the protection of his host, the psalmist is secure and safe from all harm. All his personal enemies can do is to watch, impotent to disrupt this feast at all. And according to the custom of the day, the honored guest was safe because the host was obliged to protect the guest at all costs. And you see that reflected in some of the stories in in the Old Testament. Even as there was not... Even as there was no need to fear in the valley of the darkest gloom or the valley of the shadow of death, there's not a concern here for the follower of Yahweh. Now, the psalm does not play down the reality of troubles and dangers that the believer will face. The psalm is an honest, it's honest in its depiction of, of a life that's threatening, you know, a life that's being threatened by dangers, uh, they're being posed by dark valleys. They're being posed by our enemies. Uh, living in this world is not easy. And the psalmist, psalmist recognizes that. And the psalmist has lived that. And he, he doesn't shirk away from that in this psalm. But what he wants to do is um, point us to something that's important here. There's a common, common feature between uh, the shepherd who leads in the best paths and the gracious host that protects his guests at all costs. The key is that both the shepherd and the host are sovereign over the situations. So the sheep and the guest only have to trust the leading and the hosting or the keeping of Yahweh. Verse 5 ends. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The abundant provision of the host is apparent when he, when he refreshes the weary psalmist's head with oil and overfills his cup. Now, this idea of anointing or putting oil on the head, um, now frequently we see that in the Old Testament when we think of, um, the, the, of Mashiach or the Messiah or somebody being um, anointed for a priestly service. But that's not the word that's being used here. This is a different word for anointing. And um, quite frankly, the word used for anointing here is related to being fat. Proverbs 15.30 uses the same word where it's written, bright eye gladdens the heart, Good news puts fat on the bones. Uh, fatness in those days was a, was a sign of God's blessing and health. And, you know, in a, in a day when you had to get up early and start preparing the meal that you would have, that you would have to serve your household, it was, it was an all-day event. You had to grow your own food. You had to care for flocks. Um, 
You just couldn't go to the store and buy what you needed necessarily. And uh, even today, I will confess that if I had to cook my own meals, if Lord didn't cook for me, I would be skin and bones, if not poisoned. Um, I would be skin and bones, and I, I would not be healthy. In those days, the idea of fat, you know, it was those who were healthy, those who enjoyed God's blessing and, and health, they may have fat on their bones. Uh, they would enjoy that. And that's the idea of anointing, or and, and it plays on, you know, it's a word play on, on the oil a little bit there too. So um, in David's time, it would be a sign of wealth, really, to have the host anoint the head of the guest, of the weary guest with olive oil. Uh, he would do that because in those days, if you're, you're traveling, it's hot, it's dusty. The skin really takes a beating from, from the sun and the wind and the, you know, and the dust. And uh, it was a way of kind of refreshing the body, refreshing the soul. It was a soothing balm that could be placed on the head. And for the host to do that to his guest was for the host to tell the guest that he was special, that he had meaning to him, that he, that he, the host wanted to bless his guest in that, in that way. And so when we look at this, um, it, it reminds us of what David had said earlier regarding the shepherd in verse 3 when he said, Ye, He restores my soul. It, it restores you. It, it brings you back to a level that you were before. Um, and that's the same idea here. So in the picture of this, um, in this picture of a gracious host, we see that Yahweh provides refreshment for the soul. So in verse 5, we've seen that David paints this, this picture for our worship, where Yahweh is a host to his people. As evidence of this, he says that Yahweh provides sustenance by providing a, tra- you know, a table for, this, for the traveler. He provides security from his enemies because the host blesses the psalmist even in the midst of his oppressors. And Yahweh, number three, provides refreshment for the soul. So these are the truths that are summarized at the end of verse 5 when David declares, my cup overflows. The overflowing cup is, is, is simply representative of every other element of this banquet table. The food, the service, the anointing, all are just bountifully overflowing blessings are a sign that Yahweh has his hand upon his guest. That is the kind of host that he is. And so the summary is, my cup overflows. It's his, his one statement that describes uh, this, this wonderful banquet table, and the care that's been given to the guest. So in verse 6, the last verse, it continues with, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. In this last verse, the psalmist turns from addressing God directly to making a declaration about the implication of these two, these two pictures that he's looked at, these two portraits of a God who is greater than our needs. David realizes that God is to be the desire of his people. Yahweh is to be the desire of his people. God has been shown to provide for all the needs of the sheep and for all the wants of the guest. He recognizes that there's an aspect to Yahweh's provision that applies to this temporal, physical, earthly life. Both pictures of the shepherd and the host. You see aspects of need that relate to this present life that are being met by the provision of Yahweh. You see the idea of food and drink, refreshment, protection. They were all needs of the worshipers in David's day and they're needs that you and I have today too. In other words, Yahweh provides goodness to his people 
as he abundantly provides for them. In this life, Yahweh provides goodness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This word mercy in some of the other Bibles, you might have a different word for it, but the idea is the psalmist is so sure of this fact because it's based on Yahweh's mercy or his loving kindness. This is the word hesed. Uh, It's the hesed of God, his loyal, faithful obligation and commitment to his people. Both goodness and loving kindness are qualities of our great God, Yahweh. He exhibits them in the leading of his sheep and as a gracious host, he he bestows them upon his invited guests. Even as verse 6 begins with Yahweh's provision in the life of the psalmist, it ends with an eternal look beyond the death of the follower of God. So verse 6, you see an aspect of life and then after death. After the death of the believer, um, after the death of the believer, we'll see that God provides an eternal presence. We see that where it's written, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yahweh provides eternal presence. Even as Yahweh is the desire of his people, the Bible indicates that they can look forward to residing with him forever. If the benefits of living on this earth under the care of God today as a gracious shepherd or as a gracious host or as a, as, as a leading shepherd, if he can care for us in this physical life, if that was not blessing enough, we can have the confident expectation that one day we too, like the psalmist, may abide before his throne. <clears throat> now that may not be something that you've thought of before. It may be a completely new concept to some people here. And if that's the case, then there's one more thing that you really need to know. And this is most important. God abundantly provides for his people because they are his sheep and his invited guests. In Psalm 23, we saw that Yahweh provides and provides and provides and provides and continues like that throughout the life of the psalmist, and even beyond his life and into death, past his death. God does this because the shepherd has a relationship with his sheep. The Bible crystallizes that fact. In the New Testament, in John chapter 10, verse 14, we see Jesus declaring, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. You are either one of Jesus' sheep, or you're not. You are either you either follow his voice or you do not. You either follow his leading and paths of righteousness or you do not. What is the context for this? Backing up to John chapter nine, the issue at hand was essentially the question, Who is Jesus? And the context for this is there was a man who was born blind and Jesus healed the man and the man came under persecution by the religious authorities. And the man didn't know what Jesus looked like after his healing and he couldn't find him. And so Jesus came and addressed the man. In John chapter 9, 35, Jesus asked him very plainly, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, he asked this man, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? sent from God to deliver you from your sins. In John 9.38, the man responded saying, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. There were also men there who did not believe. 
And Jesus told them three verses later, because they, they, they claimed that they were, they saw, they, they claimed that they understood everything. But three verses later, Jesus tells them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. John 9, 41. These men saw what Jesus did and they heard what he taught, but they refused to believe. So before you can honestly say the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I have to ask you this crucial question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Everything in your life hinges on that very question. The Bible says in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the charge against you if you are not one of his sheep. You have nothing within yourself to wash that stain of guilt away. You stand rightly condemned and unable to affect any change in your spiritual condition. However, in today's psalm, we saw that God abundantly provides for his people and that he is greater than our needs. Our greatest need is deliverance from the condemnation of our sins against him. God has provided for that. He's met that need in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the good shepherd, Jesus comes to lay down his life for the sheep, John 10. This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his son to die so that we might be declared righteous by his blood, being saved from the wrath of God. If you have need of a comfort, such as having the Lord as your shepherd, if you need that comfort, but your sin is in the way, please talk to someone here today. There are many here who would love nothing better than than to introduce you to their shepherd so that you can see firsthand how God abundantly provides for his people. And that would be starting with the forgiveness of your sins. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you are great and good and mighty. We have seen two pictures today of you being a shepherd and you being a host. And yet, Lord, while you were those things, you are so much more. Our greatest needs, Lord, a fellowship with you, an intimacy that we would not have. We could not be your sheep except for Christ. He knows his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Lord, may you be magnified in this word today. Thank you for your text. Thank you for the word of God that you breathed out and you've you've kept for us May it not be intellectually curious, but may it cut to our hearts, Lord. 
Help us not to depend on ourselves, Lord, but to see that you are all providing and we need to follow to accept the grace that you give. Help us to find our joy in you. Help us to find our comfort in you and help us, Lord, to be more thankful in even the little things of life like food and drink and security because you provide it all, Lord, and help us to have a whetted appetite to look forward to that time when we stand before your throne in glory and worship you face to face. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.